most of them enjoy trains of all sorts, the, the smells and the noises and the moving parts and the energy and the power, but some especially like steam locomotives because they're so lifelike. Uh, the way they breathe and the way they move and what makes them operate. And it's a little hard to explain if you're not inclined that way. Many years ago, a locomotive uh, was steaming through Scotland between Glasgow and, and Greenock when the whole train began to slow down and it seemed to be struggling along and finally the big locomotive just wheezed and hissed to a stop. And one of the passengers decided to hop off and see what had happened. And so he walked along the cars past the tender uh, to where the cab was. And looking up at the puzzled engineer, he just said, what's the matter? Have you run out of water? And the engineer replied, no, we've plenty of water, but it's not boiling. And a boiler full of water, but devoid of any fire, produces no steam, and without steam, a locomotive is just a big, inert, and expensive piece of plumbing. Uh, here's a machine that's supposed to be filled with fuel, supposed to be generated by fire, water, and power, the power to pull people and things across the countryside, sitting cold and dead on the rails, dormant and lifeless. This situation reflects rather graphically the state of the Christian without zeal, without zeal for the Lord. Paul writes by the Holy Spirit in the book of Galatians, and he says this in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 18, it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. It is good to be zealous in a good thing always. Refined by the Holy Spirit in the redeemed, uh, zeal is a good thing. In the proper sphere, zeal is always a good thing, Paul says here. And it is the Christian whose redemption opens to him or her the, the, that blessed or proper sphere for zeal. And it's one that doesn't reek of selfishness and abuse in any way, but it's the, it's the proper kind of zeal in the proper context. Paul writes by that same spirit in the book of Titus, saying that the Lord Jesus in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, that's Titus 2.14, the Lord Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. And here we find that this sort of zeal is a result of the Holy Spirit's working in and through the hearts and lives of the redeemed. In fact, beloved, the scripture makes it clear that part of its very purpose, that is our redemption, is to serve this zealous desire in the hearts of the people of God. That's part of the very purpose of your redemption, is to serve the opening of the zeal for the service of the Lord. And many sincere believers whose evangelistic zeal burns low can quote expertly 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 
All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for... Thank you, Alex. I knew he was going to say that. For every good work. And, and there are believers who can quote that scripture and without blinking an eye, reveling in their orthodoxy because they believe that about the word of God while completely ignoring the call to zealous action, specifically for the gospel's sake. What are we being equipped to? Or for? To, are we being equipped to say that I know the Bible and you don't? I love the scripture and you don't? I believe the scripture is God's inspired word and you don't? Is that what we're being equipped for? Or are we being equipped for every good work by that word? Having a firm faith in the inspiration and the effectiveness of God's word is an essential element of the Christian faith. Don't get me wrong. But a part of that conviction involves being convinced that we should not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. You remember James in chapter 1 of his epistle. He says in verse 22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his face, natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. But he does the work. You see how those things are all a part of this story? looking in the mirror of the word and coming to the perfect law of liberty and not being a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, the good work that we're supposed to be zealous for. Zeal, however, can be a problem, both in its nature, when it suffers from too much heat and not enough light, and in its sphere of operation where it's not appropriate or constructive. And we understand that. Too much zeal, uh, when it's just heat and, and not light, that is not understanding, not, not with information, not with, not with the, the biblical perspective, that can be a problem. And we all know people who are zealous in that way, and they're wrongly zealous because of that. Or the sphere of operations. There's a, an appropriate sphere in which we're called to be zealous, and there are inappropriate spheres as well. And it can not only not be appropriate, but it can be destructive. It's not just Christians who can be zealous. Paul implies in Romans 10 that not all zeal is good or even commendable. Writing of the Jews, he says there in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, not according to the scriptures, not according to the knowledge of who God is. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They have a zeal, but it's 
not in the right sphere, with the right kind of understanding. In the redeemed of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been saved to the end, that they may be zealous of good works. Zeal is appropriate. Zeal is expected. And zeal is demanded by your Lord and Savior. But on occasion, it's found that the Christian can grind to a halt. Simply because, though there's plenty of water, the fire has died down and things are no longer boiling. It can happen. Jesus, speaking through John, addresses that issue with the Laodiceans, doesn't he? In Revelation chapter 3 that Pastor Lynch just read to us. The Lord says, I know your works. And here's the thing. You're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And what is the call? You come down to verse 17, or rather 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Be zealous. Don't be content with that dormant state that's neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm. But be zealous and repent. The lack of zeal in the service of Christ had rendered the Laodiceans detestable to their Redeemer. Do you see that? I would vomit you out. I call on you to be zealous and to repent. They had become detestable to their Redeemer and the head of the church because of their lack of zeal. And Christ says in all earnestness, be zealous and repent. Now as we hear that cry and we consider this issue, it's important for us to remember that zeal is not something that the Christian can self-generate. Okay, I feel lack of zeal in myself. Well, I need to try harder. And I need to get myself moving and and working. It's not something that you can self-generate. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And it can't be self-generated, but it can be sought and cultivated. It begins with simply knowing the want and the need of the matter. Not looking away, not pretending like it's not so, but acknowledging there is a need there. Christ clearly wants you and me to be zealous in our good evangelical works in this world. And if we're not, we need to confront that reality. That's first. In some cases, it might be a matter of keeping the fire going. You know, we, we are, and we, we're aware of those things, and we do have a zeal for the Lord, but we can't maintain that by our own strength. 
It's a matter of our keeping it going and, and calling on the Lord to keep it going in us. For others, it's a matter of throwing on more fuel because the fire is burning down. In some cases, there's a critical need of stirring up the all but extinguished embers back into flame. And I use those images because I think we can picture them pretty easily. Some have an active burden for the lost and a determination to be loving God and others, not only in word and tongue, but in deed and in truth. But it's not a self-perpetuating thing. And attention, even in those cases, needs to be given to both the intensity and the character of one's zeal. We, we just can't assume on it. As soon as we begin to assume on it, it begins to wane. In Psalm 119, in verse 88, David says, Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. And then in verse 117, he says, Hold me up, and I shall be safe, and shall observe your statutes continually. And here's David saying, I, I have this desire, I want to be zealous, but I realize that it's not in me to keep myself in that state. And so he's calling on the Lord in his loving kindness to, to, to revive him and then to keep him safe and to keep him animated with that zeal that gives him a heart for God and for the Christian and for the non-Christian. And then there are others where there is evidence that zeal, once burning strong, has lost some of its earnestness and some of its intention. And it's common in such cases to begin resting on reputation rather than activity. Now to say, well, I, I, I've done that before. I've done that in the past. And to sort of use that to rest on rather than zeal of the moment. And here, too, attention needs to be given to the matter. In Psalm 85, verse 6, David cries out, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? And that's a cry for the restoration of zeal for the Lord, from the Lord, for the Lord. Again, in Psalm 119, Revive me according to your loving kindness. And there are still others, however. where it's never, the zeal has never really been inflamed or has burned down to a few simmering coals. And the needs here are basic. But the mistake that's often made is that because there exists a lack of zeal, the individual feels like it's hopeless or useless or maybe even somehow inappropriate to confess that and to appeal for grace to seek in Christ's name to see the situation altered or improved I never really have been zealous for the Lord I never really have been zealous for the lost I never have been zealous in my service and it seems like it's inappropriate for me to ask for something now that has never been part of my life before. And that, beloved, is a critical mistake. 
It's better to go to the Lord and confess that one has no zeal and desire for it than to remain silent. It's better to go and confess it's not there than to remain silent before him. Because if you're in that situation, he already knows it. When you go and say, you know what, you tell me to be zealous and I don't really feel like being zealous, you're not, the Lord's not going, oh, I didn't know that about you. I thought you were really zealous and now I'm finding out you aren't because you're, you're, you're telling me you aren't. And I thought you were all this time. The Lord knows the state of our hearts. He knows where we are and who we are. Octavius Winslow says, It's no strange thing that their love to him should wax cold, their faith decline, their strength decay, their zeal slacken, their godly frames grow sleepy and inert, the spirit of prayer be restrained, the means of grace be neglected, and as a consequence of all this inward declension, the world should have an ascendancy. That is, the world should have more influence in the heart and the life. It's no surprise to him. But the thing is, beloved, if you are redeemed, you're still God's child. And if you call on him, he will hear you and he will answer. And that's why it's better to confess the problem than to ignore it and remain silent. In Psalm 10, in verse 17, David says, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear. The Lord will open his ear to those who come to him humbly and confess the true nature of their circumstance. So obviously here, the first step in catching this sort of spiritual fire that we call zeal is prayer. Prayer that confesses the true state of the matter, that recognizes the need of grace, and that calls upon God according to his covenant promises in Christ Jesus to supply all our spiritual needs. This isn't a call from the word of God for you to exercise zeal in and of yourself. It's a call for you to call upon God to make you zealous for his glory, and for the glory of his kingdom. But as is often the case, it's not just enough to recognize the need and simply dully ask God to work. And I grant you that there are times when you may have no strength to do much more. And We look to the Holy Spirit to to work for us in those moments and to make intercession for us with groanings which we can't understand. We look at ourselves and we recognize our weakness and all we can do is acknowledge that before the Lord. But it demonstrates, beloved, the, uh, the sincerity of that confession and our appeals for help, even weak as they are when we expose ourselves to those truths which by the hand of God and the work of the Spirit can be used to stir the coals 
and renew the flames, oxygenating the soul with the God-breathed word of truth. It's one thing for me to stand here and say, you know, I just don't have any zeal. (laughs) And I, I can't do anything about it. Lord, please help me, and then going my way. It's another thing for me to say, I know that's true, and my only hope is God, and God has given me his word, and I need to expose myself to it and what it says. So I'd like to reflect in the time left on the motives to zeal this morning that are set before us in the word of God, especially in the evangelical exercise of good works. That is, good works, not as a means of self-justification or redemption, but good works as a manifestation of or as a means of evangelistic testimony and outreach to the lost and the zeal called for in those motives. First and foremost, and you could probably give it to me so you don't need me to give it to you, is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This testimony of yours to those who are lost in the world and are in darkness and are hurting and pain, this testimony is a matter of Christ's glory. When you see the world despising Christ and you see the church failing to honor Christ, There's a reason why that despising is there. There's a a connection there. You can't separate that out. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, and we've used this verse throughout this series, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? And do what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. You do this. You let your light shine. You let men see Christ in you. You do that through works of love and through works of of grace towards others. And they will see that and glorify your Father which is in heaven. This is part of the glory of Christ. And it's by the zealous pursuit of good works by Christians that God is glorified whether the world recognizes it or not. And that's essential here. When we're talking about glorifying God and glorifying Christ by our good works, we're not saying that the whole world will see that and say, isn't God wonderful? Now, some of them will curse you, and some of them will curse God. Some of them will attack you. Some of them will denigrate you. But nevertheless, in that good work you have done, God is glorified. God himself is glorified. Christ is glorified. Thomas Goodwin says, Christ, or excuse me, Henry Goodwin says, Christ says to all his disciples, now as then, at all times and in all places, you are the light of the world. If you have been illuminated by God's spirit, it's not that you should keep your light to yourselves, but that you should extend the blessing to your brethren. And then, and though one light may be greater than another, still the smallest spark is is the direct opposite of darkness and is a better guide than no light at all. 
But Peter kind of gives us the further insight into this. When he says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. When you consider carefully what Peter says here, you see three things. First, that Christians will be spoken against as evildoers. That's what Peter says. You'll be spoken against as evildoers when you go out and love, not in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth, you will be spoken of as an evildoer. You might be hearing some of that right now. I certainly have. But notice, beloved, that it's neither new or unheard of. Peter's talking about it. Leighton says, this is the world's maxim. Lie confidently, and they will always do something. As a stone taken out of the mire and thrown against a white wall, though it sticks not there, but rebound presently back again, yet it leaves a spot behind it. And so lie. Lie confidently. Say that these good works done by Christians are actually evil. Keep saying it. Keep telling that lie. And keep throwing that stone against the wall, and eventually it will leave a mark of some kind. So we are going to be evil spoken against. The second thing Peter says here is, what is our calling when we're being evilly spoken against? It's not to pull in. You know, like the tortoise and hide within our shells. Ooh, they're saying bad things about Christians, so we better not go out there and let people know we're Christians and do Christian things. Like reaching out to the lost and loving those who are in despair and showing them kindness and love. We better not do that. We better crawl inside of our shells and hide because they're saying evil things about us. It's not what Peter says. This is the time to demonstrate in the world the love of God not by word and tongue, but in deeds and in truth. So the more that they denigrate the Christian and the Christian's principles and the Christian's demonstration of love, the more the Christian should be out there demonstrating those things. Showing, no, this is love. I hear what you're saying. I hear the accusations you're making, but this is love. And I'm coming in the name of Christ and I'm continuing to show forth that love even in such circumstances. And what's the result, Peter says? God will be glorified. Now, don't mistake those words. Peter's not saying that in the day of judgment, the whole world will see you doing nice and necessary things and will repent of their sins. They may, but that's not Peter's point here. His point is, that in the day of judgment, God will be glorified one way or the other. In other words, when these people who have to the very end said what you're doing is evil, when God shows that this is no, that no, this is indeed his work and the demonstration of his love to the lost world that the lost world has rejected, He will be glorified for the grace and the mercy and the love that he's shown through his people, even in the midst of that hatred and despising and opposition. Does that make sense? 
You see here what he's saying? God will still be glorified and by what you do. And that's why you do it even more when the world opposes it. You go out and you show the love of Christ to a world that hates the love of Christ. You do it. And then the Lord uses that to glorify himself, either by changing hearts and and bringing conviction and, and melting hearts and breaking them down through the love and the kindness you show, or he glorifies himself in the fact that in the day of judgment, he judges men and women who rejected that message, even though it was a message of love and kindness and care. And they won't be able to say, you never showed us any love. Well, yes, I did. I sent you this Christian who came and shared with you the gospel. I sent you this Christian who gave you a sip of water when you were thirsty. I showed you this Christian when you were suffering and ill, and they came and showed you kindness. I sent you this Christian who, when you had financial difficulties and were crippled and depressed and sorrowful, came and put an arm around you and said, how can I help you and what can I do for you? There was my love. And you shut your eyes to it, you shut your heart to it, and your judgment is just, and God is glorified. Either way, he's glorified. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians, and this is in chapter 1, verse 3, he said to the Thessalonians, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be admired among all those who believe because of our testimony among you, because our testimony among you was believed. So Christians act for the glory of Christ. It's much easier to stand up in worship and service and to sing, we glorify you 30 times, than it is to meet a critical and condemning world head on with evangelical good deeds done in truth for Christ's sake in the name of the gospel. It's easier to sing about it than it is to actually do it. But it's in the doing that Christ is truly glorified. So the first motive is the glory of Christ. The second one is it's in our DNA our redeemed DNA, not uh, our natural DNA, but our redeemed DNA. Your Savior looks out over a broken, dying, dark, 
and sad world. And when he sees the multitudes in that condition, we're told he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. We look out on that same world and we see people who are like sheep having no shepherd and the shepherds they do have are criminal. And we look out and we we see their sorrow, we see their darkness, we see the tragedy of it all. What is the response of those who have the same spirit as Christ when they look out on that same situation? If we have the same spirit of Christ, then our hearts are going to be filled with that same spirit of compassion. The Lord had been out healing and restoring, but much more was intended. Those good works were used by him to open the spiritual ears of the deaf and to open the spiritual eyes of the blind. And that's the compassion that Christ feels and is showing at that moment. A.T. Robertson says, The cures won him the ear of the people for his message. They also expressed the love and pity of his heart. And if you're a believer, that same spirit is in you, isn't it? You want to go out and you want to win the ears of the people by helping them in their sorrow and their confusion and in their darkness. And through that, you want to express the love and pity of Christ's heart for them. We see here, beloved, in in this one scene, the, the free and the natural spirit of love and compassion in our Savior for the lost. And if his spirit dwells in any one of us, that same spirit ought naturally to be found in us. Again, every mature believer knows the words from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You might not recognize the reference, but you know the words. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I bet if I asked uh, how many of you have memorized that, a lot of hands would go up. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And you could probably quote that verse too. That you've been redeemed and you've been called to, to let the Spirit work in you and to renew your minds so that you can approve what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I want to ask you, And I'm asking myself too. Can there be any doubt as to the good and acceptable and perfect will of God in this matter? Remember the words of Paul to Titus? Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Can there be any doubt as to what is the perfect will of God in regard to this matter? And we understand that by zealous good works, he doesn't mean just coming in here 
and singing with all our hearts on Sunday morning. That is one of the things for his glory, but we know that that's not the sum and the total of it. These good works are works of love towards those who are in need. The third thing is, the third motive here is, this is love. This is love. The book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.24, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And there it is again, this call for stirring up, this call for showing our love, our love for, for Christ and showing Christ's love by these evangelistically driven works. We've spent a great deal of time on this point previously, so I'm not going to go into it in detail, but just remind ourselves of the context of the theme verse that we've been working from. I think you've heard me say it enough that you probably have memorized John, uh, 1 John 3.18, let us love one another. But let's go back and think about the context. The verse before it says, Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So we've already established that this is a testimony of love. The last thing I want to touch on this morning is that this is joy. This is joy, beloved. It's a great source of joy to be doing this, to being zealous in the work of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, there we read words that are very familiar to us. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. How many of you have heard those words before? Almost all of us. How have you sung those words before? None of us, right? Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. This passage goes on to say, They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. You have been light in the darkness. You have brought that light to bear. And what is the result? It's joy in the hearts of all. And people come with joy and rejoicing. There are three joyful responses involved. The joy of the one who was lost and is now found. There's no joy like the joy of someone who has been lost in sin and in darkness and finds the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no joy like that. There is the joy of heaven, where it seems, beloved, even the glorified saints have some awareness of such events and begin with fresh joy, the adoration of God and the Lamb. It's an enigma to us. We don't understand it. But Jesus said, and this is in Luke chapter 15 and verse 7, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. There'll be joy in heaven. And trying to understand what that means is just something that's beyond us. 
But we're told by our Savior that it's true. When you reach out to one of these lost persons, and they're of God's elect, and the Lord uses you to bring them to himself, there is joy in heaven over, that, over the repentance of that soul. And some commentators have pictured it as, as you see other scenes in the, the book of Revelation where the angels and the elders and the apostles, uh, the prophets and the apostles, they've kind of glorified God all they can. They fall down their faces and it's kind of the end and then it starts all over again. And they get up and start right where they were before and do the same thing all over again until they can't say or do anymore and then they fall down and then they get up again and do it again. And the idea here, some say, is that this idea of repentance of believers every time, the sense of that is realized among the glorified saints in heaven. There's this rejoicing in heaven over it. Another, praise God, glorify the Lamb, and it starts all over again. And then there's the joy of the one who's been employed by grace in such a wonderful event. What joy for you to be used by God to bring one who is lost and dead to himself. What a joy for you to be chosen by God to bring that elect one he loves towards him and to be counted by God as being a part of that work. Paul said of the Thessalonians who received it the word of received the word at his hand. Paul says, this is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. You're it. Seeing you in the presence of Christ, seeing you rejoicing before the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, that's my joy. That's my glory. Knowing that that God has used me in this way to bring you that kind of peace and that kind of joy. And that's what we're talking about in going out and and bearing this precious seed and and going out and, and reaching out to those who are lost. We're looking to see the joy of seeing them before the Lord in joy and in peace and in happiness, their broken lives restored, their dark hearts filled with light, and rejoicing and praising God. Let's pray, beloved, as Thomas Boston did, that our hearts may be inflamed with zeal for the glory of our Master, that out of love to God, And out of love to souls, we may be found loving in deeds and in truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, there's not a life that is a mystery or an enigma to you this morning. And all of us are open and naked before you. We cannot hide who and what we are. Lord, we are so thankful to be called by grace 
and to be deemed disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, at the same time, we must acknowledge that part of that calling has to do with our being raised up a special people to you for the purpose of being zealous for good works. Not for our redemption, not for our justification. That all is the work of our Savior and we thank you and we praise you for him. But Lord, for the glory of our Savior. Father, because it's a part of who we are as Christians, as disciples. Lord, because it's the the way of real joy and thanksgiving. And Lord, it's love. It's true love. The Father helped none of us. to be satisfied with being those who are hearers of the word and not doers. But Lord, let us examine our hearts. Let us examine our zeal. And let us look to the one who gives us that fire that is necessary for our zeal to burn brightly, for our light to burn brightly where we've come short and and we have. We pray for that forgiveness which is ours in Christ Jesus. But we pray, Lord, that we'd be sincere in that repentance by not being satisfied with the status quo. But praying, Lord, that even now the doors of opportunity would be open to us that we might show the love of Christ. And Lord, if there's anyone here without zeal because they're without Christ, we pray, Father, that you would help them to see that all around them are poor, weak sinners who have found light and life in Jesus Christ. And we are not the people that we would be. We're not the people that we would be. But we have been changed been made new creatures and though we're still weak and frail we long to reflect in our lives the love of Christ even towards them and we pray Lord that they would see it that you would use it in their lives and Father let them know this joy which passes understanding please Lord be merciful please Lord work please Lord keep us safe Please, Lord, keep us zealous. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In our closing hymn.